This is the Writer Who Reads podcast coming to you direct from New Orleans, Louisiana. Hello. Greetings. This is Kate Austin, the writer who doesn't read enough. And this is Trapper Kinchin, the writer who doesn't write enough. And you are now listening to episode 11. (laughs) Which is super, super special to me personally. And this is Women's History Month. Is it really? It is. It is March. I never knew March was Women's History Month until you mentioned it a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, and I don't know how I knew. I think because it coincides with like International Women's Day. Which is in March also. Yeah. Okay. So I don't I don't know. But we were like, duh, we're gonna do an episode about a couple episodes yes. about women and their contributions to history. And I wanna say when we decided to celebrate women's history month mm-hmm. Through our podcast, we kind of were like, there's so many facets of womanhood. Yeah, like what theme should we choose? Mm -hmm. And luckily we finally settled on something that is broad and kind of fun to talk about. And it was almost hard to decide on it because we chose to do femininity as our theme. But we, I was like, Trapper, you know, like all women aren't feminine and it's like a sliding scale. And- well, it's the thing about femininity is you're right. It's a scale. Mm-hmm. Not just women are feminine. Yeah. Femininity does not define womanhood. Uh-huh. So it kind of gives you so many avenues to explore in conjunction with womanhood. Yeah, exactly. You know, and one thing you talked about is one of the, you know, great tradition, writerly traditions uh-huh. is discussing the female form and and kind of comparing it to other things yeah and all the different forms that it can actually take exactly and i because i feel like there is a very narrow view of what femininity is and there's there's just so many ways to express Mm -hmm. it and i think that both of us chose authors that do that in very different ways exactly so i'm excited about this theme i'm excited to talk about femininity as a concept in general. Yes, and you know, the American ideal of what constitutes femininity is really narrow. So it's going to be nice to push the boundaries. Yes. Kind of walk outside the lines. Uh Uh-huh. And, and, I don't know, draw fascinating conclusions, which you're really good at. (laughs) Stop (laughs) You are. Well, I am a creative writer, so I can pull anything out of my tush. So let me get into my author. Okay, so the author that I chose is going to be a familiar one from another episode, but her name is Mary Powell Burrell. Okay, Burrell sounds familiar. Yeah. But I don't remember ever discussing a Mary Powell. Do you remember a Mamie Burrell? Uh-huh. Okay. She... <laughs> yeah, okay, so she, if you all did not listen to episode two or you don't remember, but we briefly mentioned her because she was Angelina Wilde Grimke's teenage adolescent love interest i knew the name sounded familiar to me yeah so i was i was like racking my brain on who who to choose for this episode and her night her name popped up and i was just like we're gonna go for this because i want to hear her side of the story yeah well see i didn't even know she was an author i just thought she just was the correspondent of yeah like grimke literary no no she's she had a pretty interesting career it's not as i think um complex as Angelina Well Grimke's, but she definitely wrote some really important things um, in her lifetime. So I'm going to start off by telling you all a little bit about her life, and then we are going to have the task of reading (laughs) a piece of work from her. I can't wait. Okay. 
Okay, so Mary Powell Burrell, also known as Mamie Burrell, was born on August 30th in 1881 in Washington, D.C. to John H. and Clara E. Burrell. John H. John H. I looked for this man's full name for a very long time, and I could not find it. So he's John H., and her mother's last name is Burrell. So I'm guessing that her father might not have been in the picture. I don't I don't want to make any assumptions, but So she may have been odd. illegitimate. Yeah. Okay. But I don't want to I, mean, I don't want to assume, but man, it was hard. We're talking and just so I'm clear, we're talking about a woman of color was Yes, yeah, she's an African American woman. Okay. And um, this is, you know, we talked about this a little bit, but this is the first generation of free black people. So post-slavery. Yeah. So that might be why it was a little hard to figure out who exactly her parents were. Do we know that both of her parents were black people or do we or is there ambiguity as to her racial heritage there didn't seem to be any ambiguity she is also a dark-skinned woman okay so i think that it's easy to assume that both of her parents were black but okay. hey maybe not Who knows? yeah exactly so in 1901 she graduated from m street high school which we know was later changed to dunbar high school named after paul lawrence dunbar alice dunbar nelson's first husband and since we can't seem to get away from this school, I thought that I was going to say, what is this, the third time we've <laughs> yeah. referenced M Street yeah. High School? Oh my God, I just, I love these uh, episodes we- weaving together, so it's good. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, but I thought we should talk about the school's history. It was founded in 1870 as one of the first preparatory high schools for black students. Was it public or private? I don't know, but I want to say that it was public just for this next little fact. Okay. So from its founding until ni- 1891, the school moved around a bit. It was always kind of makeshift. But by 1890, Congress appropriated 112000 to build a permanent school on M Street. So, you know, it sounds like a public school. Yeah, and this yeah. was a school for, like, free people of color. Yeah, for, well, at this point, okay. every person of color was technically free. Oh, true. Yeah. So this would have been, a, I guess, a school for people of color. Yeah, yeah, and it was they, it was founded in 1870, and that's why it was one of the first. Was this kind of like one of those um, Freedmen's Bureau schools? I don't know. Okay. Because I know that that was happening a lot in the Reconstruction era. Oh, really? Yeah, they were so creating mm-hmm. schools for people who were newly freed and who needed fun, like, you know, wow. like reading primary skills. education. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know, maybe it was part of that. Wow, initiative. probably. Yeah, to find $112,000 in like 1870. I was going to say. For black students, that's crazy. That's yeah. great. So in 1916, the school was moved to another building and renamed Dunbar High School. It produced a lot of college graduates and public figures and educators, including Mamie Burrell, Charles Hamilton Houston, who was a prominent civil rights attorney, and Eva Beatrice Dykes, the first black woman to earn a doctorate degree. Yeah. So this school like, really was putting out a lot of a great That's all. So people. These, these people going there weren't just going to a solid high school. They were going to a school that provided them with an exceptional education. Exactly. It was really a college prep school. Yeah, so Angelina Weld Grimke, our beloved poet and playwright and civil rights act- activist, who we touched on in episode two, lived in Washington, D.C. from 1894 to 1898 while in high school. And I couldn't figure out if she also went to M Street School or if she was at another school in D.C. Because during this time, we know that Grimke was born in Boston. Mm-hmm. And she spent four years in D.C. living with her aunt and uncle while her dad was like off in the Dominican Republic doing work. But it's, it's very important that she was in the same city as, as Burrell at this time. While we know Grimke returned to Boston to attend the Boston Normal School of Gymnastics, Burrell moved with her own family to Boston. 
There, she attended the Emerson College of Oratory, now Emerson College, where in 1904, she became the first known African-American to graduate. Wow. Yeah. Burrell is known for two plays, Aftermath, which was published in 1919 in The Liberator, which was an anti-lynching play about a black soldier returning home to find out that his father has been lynched. Okay. And They That Sit in Darkness, published in 1916 in The Birth Control Review, which is the play that we'll read from today. Through these plays, Burrell conveyed then-radical stances on issues of race and gender. So she, like Grimke, her work really focuses on mm-hmm. the plight of black people, people yeah. during this period of time. Exactly, okay. yeah. Which, I mean, it, they come from the same area, too. I'm sure they had some great conversations about that plight. Oh, sure. As many black And that was a heady people. issue at the time. Oh, yes. I mean, it still is, but I mean... It, it was a crisis. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so Mary Burrell spent most of her teaching career at Dunbar High School, where she taught English, speech, and drama in the same department, working very closely with Angelina Weld Grimke. While Burrell and Grimke's relationship did not reach far past their adolescence, and Grimke appeared to live a rather solitary life, Burrell found a life partner in Lucy Diggs Slow, the first dean of women at Howard University. Burrell and Slow lived together in Washington, D.C. from 1922 until 1937 when Slow died. You know, I want to say this. <laughs> These people are so... I just It blows my mind because these important people who are doing these incredible things got a hold to each other. Mm-hmm. The first dean of women at Howard. Yes. Oh they, they just like intertwined. I'm like, how do I just like <laughs> casually get involved with these really cool people? Am you, I not cool enough? The, I just, I don't, it blows my mind. Almost everybody that especially you've chosen, uh huh. they just magnetically find each other. In the and same build. circle. Yes. Yeah, and I'm like, oh man, like I'm going back to Mamie Burrow. We already talked about mm-hmm. her. We should talk about something new. But I'm like, it is so interesting that these people have their own achievements where yeah. they can have their own episodes. And I know that I'm talking about Grimke a lot right now, mm-hmm. but that love story, it just the intensity of it just sticks with me I forever. Rem- I remember specifically the letter that you read the thing that always sticks out is the my wife yes line. yeah yeah you know it's so interesting that at this time and at that age they could have been so intense with one another and i want to say this too you know not just that these these people were finding other influential people mm-hmm. they were all very queer yeah and that blows my mind also and it was almost common knowledge right and that's very interesting for me like you know that they they could exist and they could have these great careers and and be respected for their writing at a time where it, i thought if if you were queer and, and people knew about it you would be kind of ostracized right. but they weren't they managed to have success yeah exactly which is so it, i don't know it talks it <laughs> when when i find people being homophobic or crazy today i'm like these people like in the early 1900s could get over it you can get over it very easily Come on, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but and the, another interesting thing is that in 1944 bro retired from teaching and relocated to new york city where she died two years later on march 13 1946 and at the time grimke was also had relocated to new york city too so their lives circled one another in a lot of ways but they weren't as close as they were, of course. So they they were almost always in the same city. Yeah. But they didn't. There's no evidence. They of didn't them have having much a contact. Yeah. After the relationship, like the romantic relationship ended, there was a a letter I think sent in like 1911 because Grimke had some type of accident on public transportation and her 
spine was fractured. Mm. And Burrow was like, look, I know that we're not close as, as like we used to be, but if you need anything, I'm always here for you. So it was interesting seeing that, that relationship play out. <laughs> so they were kindred even though they weren't. Yeah. You know. Which is sweet and sad at the same it time. Is. But it sounded like at, at when they were younger, Grimke kind of spurned her. Right. Is and, she... and like, you know, that relationship, although implicitly kind of sexual, was also kind of innocent too. It was, yeah. So a child, you know, like a, like a childlike mm-hmm. love that maybe never blossomed. And part of us. me thought that that's like how, as far as Grimke could have gone, because she was very, I mean, we did her episode under the secrets theme. Mm-hmm. She was very private and she yeah. felt a lot of, I think, shame or fear of, of disappointing her father. Mm-hmm. Whereas Burrow was like, this is my life partner and we live together. Hey. And she's the <laughs> dean of women in Howard. Yeah, so. exactly. <laughs> so yeah, okay. Anyway, I'm going to stop talking about Grimke because I could do that forever. <laughs> Burrow wrote some really interesting stage plays. So this is going to be a first for us, reading something that isn't that isn't poetry or especially literary. Yeah, because the thing that, as I could, you know, when you're in school and you're an academic, uh-huh. one thing that you learn pretty quick is anything can be considered a text. Yeah. A movie, a play, a song. And it can be analyzed like any other piece of literature, even if it's not, like you say, especially literary. Mm-hmm. So stage plays have really great merit, analytical merit, mm-hmm. meaning you can parse that just as easily or you know efficiently or interestingly as you can a short story a novel or a poem yeah so i'm really excited that you've chosen something outside of the gamut thank you i'm really nervous because it's written to be read a certain way and earlier i i said that it was colloquial Mm -hmm. and you said yes you read it phonetically so you talk about the difference yeah those well two you you kind of were having a special moment <laughs> a while ago when you were reading it and you were like tickling yourself and i wasn't tickling myself i was quaking in fear because i was like okay. there's no way i'm going on the podcast and reading this i'm gonna sum up the story and you were like no honey you're gonna do it yeah well and you read me like a line or two and um it seems that she wrote phonetically mm-hmm. which especially during this period of history that's what people did and it was uh, what they basically did is they wrote dialogue yes. the way somebody would actually, the way it would Speak sound. It. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and people did that to sort of um, delineate race, class, regionality, just difference. Yeah, and I want to touch briefly on, because we were in this novel writing workshop, which was like a, the first session of its kind at Louisiana State University, and our <laughs> professor was like, don't do that. Don't write yeah. that way. Don't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's something very special that was done in the past. But from a writer's perspective, it's really interesting because it's like, does it add anything to the story? Or are you relying on this to convey those things? You know, the race and the class. You know, can't you use well, the I, actual prose exactly. of the story to express those things? When you write phonetically, you're really not allowing your reader to think for herself Mm -hmm. you're saying this is what i need you to grasp from this character they're not intelligent or they're you know a person of color because of the way i've laid out this dialogue Mm -hmm. and what you really want to do is and it's making assumptions i'm sorry it is yeah well you know the number one rule of writing is show don't tell yes and so when you write phonetically you're telling rather than showing so um and this was very common we talked about some other examples i mean 
uh, British writers who wrote all the way from 1500 or mm-hmm. uh, up until you know the 20th century, if they were writing a Scots character or a Welsh character yeah. or a Cornish character, they would write it so that their English readership would say, ah, this is a person who is not English. Mm-hmm. And in, in America, you know, Margaret Mitchell's magnum opus, Gone with the Wind, yeah. her black characters, she writes their dialogue phonetically. And so it was very common, but we don't do it anymore because on top of wanting our readers to glean what they, you know, for themselves, yeah. information from the text, it also is just kind of not couth. <laughs> yeah, no, I understand that. Uh, so yeah, I think that's what makes it even more difficult for me to even imagine having to read this on the podcast. But I am excited because this is going to produce a really good conversation. Okay, I thought you were going to say a really great moment of comedy for me. Well, listening to you struggle to read. That as well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. No, you um, you did the couple of lines earlier, and you did uh-huh. such a good job. I'm serious. You didn't think you did, but I thought you did a great job. So I think it's going to give you a chance to flex your actorly muscles. Oh, yeah, definitely. So, yeah, um, you all be the judge of that. That's coming up right now. And if you don't like it... Leave a comment. Don't leave a comment. I'm begging of you. (laughs) (laughs) They That Sit in Darkness by Mary Burrell. It is late afternoon of a day in September. The room, which does a threefold duty as kitchen, dining room, and living room for the Jasper family, is dingy and disorderly. Great black patches as though from smoke are on the low ceilings and the walls. To the right is a door leading into a bedroom. In the opposite wall, another door leads into a somewhat larger room that serves as bedroom for six Jasper children. In the rear wall, a door opens into a large yard. A window is placed to the left of the door, while against the wall to the right there stands an old battered cowhide trunk. The furniture, which is poor and dilapidated, consists of a table in the center of the room, a cupboard containing a few broken cups and plates, a rocker, and two or three plain chairs with broken backs and uncertain legs. Against the wall to the left there is a kitchen stove, on which sit a tea kettle and a wash boiler. Near the window, placed upon stools, are two large laundry tubs. Through open window and door, one gets a glimpse of snowy garments waving and glistening in the sun. Melinda Jasper, a frail, tired-looking woman of 38, and Lindy, her 17-year-old daughter, are bending over the tub, swirling their hands in the water to make sure that their task is completed. From the yard come the constant cries of children at play. Mrs. Jasper, straining up painfully from the tubs. Lord, Lindy, how my side do hurt, but thank goodness this job's done. She sinks exhausted into the rocker. Run get me one of them tablets the doctor left for this pain. Lindy hurries into the adjoining room and returns with the medicine. Mrs. Jasper, shaking her head mournfully. This old pain gonna be taking me away from here one these days. Lindy, looking at her in concern. See ma, I told you not to be doing all this work. What's Miss Elizabeth gonna say when she comes here this evening and find out you done all this work after she told you particular yesterday that she was gonna let you out of bed for three weeks and here taint been a week since baby was born? Miss Jasper, I ain't caring about this Miss Elizabeth say. Easy enough Lindy for these nurses to give their advice. They ain't got no seven children to clothe and feed. But when this washing get back, I can never catch up. Lindy, reapprovingly. But I could have done it myself. Mrs. Jasper, and been all day and night doing it and miss getting yourself off in the morning to Tuskegee? No, indeedy. Lindy, hesitatingly, 
Perhaps I oughtn't be going away and leaving you with all this washing to do every week and the cheering to look after and the baby and all. Daddy, he gets home so late he can't be no help. Mrs. Jasper, wearily. Never you mind, Lindy. I'm going to be getting all white by and by. I ain't a going to be standing in the way of your getting this education. Your chance done come, Lindy, and I want to see you take it. You've been a good child, Lindy, and I wants to see you get more out in life than I gets. Them three year at Tuskegee weren't seen long. Lindy, her face brightening up. Yes, um, and if Mr. Huff, the superintendent, makes me county teacher like he says he do when I get back, I can do lots more for you and the chairn. The cry of a weak old infant comes from the adjoining room. So that was They That Sit in Darkness by Mary Burrill. I'm still like Taylor. That was really difficult for me. I could, you know, <laughs> that was not an easy task. Nope. I think you handled it with grace and dignity. Thank you. And I want to say that it took a little bit of courage on your part uh-huh. because there was some trepidation involved. Yeah. Um, but part of, I believe, part of analyzing a work like this mm-hmm. is taking it at face value. Yeah. And you read that phonetically? As it was, I mean, it, it was written that way for a very real reason. It had a purpose. You know, Burl was trying to talk about um, racial and economic inequalities at the time. So, of course, she's going to have that language in there. And in the form of a nurse, Elizabeth Shaw, who comes in later, who speaks in the standard American English that we're familiar with. Right. She kind of creates this juxtaposition. Um, and I, I imagine that Mammy Burrow herself also did speak like the nurse and, and sure. uh, yeah, highly educated. And Burrow was living in D.C. Mm-hmm. She, based on context clues, she set this play in Alabama. In the South. Yeah, you know how plays are laid out where at the beginning you, you get a character list and you get a setting. It doesn't even say Alabama, but they do reference Tuskegee. And we can imagine that Lindy isn't going far. So we assume that it's Alabama, but mm-hmm. in the in the setting it just says a southern town right, okay. in 1919. And this is a this is like about birth control, right? It is. It like that's that's the main theme I think. But not only that, but like education, birth control, and just the availability of those things to black women at the time. Yeah, I'm imagining 1919, or what was it? This was 1919. It's at 1919. Yeah. Okay. I imagine the availability of just basic information in terms of birth control would have been limited. Exactly. And I want to read you a little piece from the play because I don't think that we said that was just the tiniest excerpt from the first part of the play um, because I don't think I have the ability to read that through. stamina. (laughs) Yeah. Or like different voices (laughs) because there's more characters introduced. And one character that was introduced that I really want to talk about is a nurse whose name is Elizabeth Shaw. And she comes in and she's very educated. We just talked about her. And it doesn't say if she's like a black nurse or a white nurse. They don't really say that much about it um, or about the character. But this one line that she has, and she's very just kind of overwhelmed, just looking around at the poverty, at the lack of education. And she says, I wish to God it were lawful for me to do so. My heart goes out to you poor people that sit in darkness, having year after year children that you are physically too weak to bring into the world, children that you are unable to not only educate, but even to clothe and feed. Melinda, when I took my oath as a nurse, I swore to abide by the laws of the state, and the law forbids me telling you what you have a right to know. 
So she's talking about contraception there. Right. And whenever you were reading this, uh-huh. I was the Comstock Act, I guess, would still, I don't know, be in effect in 1919. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that was a, that made it a federal offense mm-hmm. to send any information about contraception through the mail, to send contraception through the mail, to discuss contraception with somebody. Um, so I guess as a nurse, and she couldn't say. Yeah, like that's what she's not, saying. Legally, I cannot right. explain to you how to stop having these children. Mm-hmm. You, your health is at risk. Yeah. You don't have money to raise them. You can't clothe them. You can't feed them. But I'm not allowed to tell you about this. It's weird. It's, it's, is it rooted in religion? Was that like a... It was a morality issue. Uh-huh. Um, and I think the Comstock Act came into effect 1870s. I'm really uh-huh. shooting in the dark here. But I associate it with the pioneers. So Uh, the idea is if you lived in New York City, you couldn't send a pamphlet to your sister who's in Nebraska about measures to prevent having children. Because they wanted to populate the West? (laughs) I don't know. It was an issue of morality. We're living in a period of time where Uh Victorian standards of living standards were sort of reign supreme. Yeah. And um, I don't don't know in terms of... (laughs) The America of 1919 and 1870, we're not. America was not majority Catholic, mm-hmm. so yeah. I don't know what the main opposition to contraception was. Yeah, when you was. you look at where they are in the South too, I mean, isn't a very Baptist. I don't know Baptist yeah. ideas of family planning or anything like that either. It it depends. I mean, it's a different time period. It so. is, but I'm like you know, I'm thinking in terms of the Protestant faith, mm-hmm. generally speaking. Yeah, um, contraception's a very not a big issue. Oh, really? No, it's not. I mean, I know that the Pope does not allow um, the use of birth control technically. Yeah, oh, I have some news for the Pope. Yeah. <laughs> I know plenty of Catholics who do. But in terms of the Protestant faith, I mean, unless you're a real fundamental, yeah. like, you know, primitive Baptist or something like that, it's not really a big a big deal. Yeah. It's not forbidden. It's seen, you know, the idea of, you know, science serves a purpose mm-hmm. in religion too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So birth control is kind of a gift in a way. Yeah. And this this nurse is like desperately just wanting to tell her about yeah. contraception. She's She gets very excited later on in the story when she finds out that Lindy is going to school. Yeah. Because it's almost like this cycle is going to be broken. Like she's going to go get an education and, and everything's going to be okay. And like she'll be able to provide for this family a little bit better. And she's very excited about that. But I want to talk a little bit about how the story ends okay okay so mrs jasper had given birth a week before and she wasn't supposed to be up i mean the scene that we were reading they were doing laundry Mm -hmm. which she shouldn't have been doing because she was still weak from having her baby um and as the story progresses she's like not feeling well she takes that medicine she sits down um lindy is packing up to go to school and interacting with like her many siblings Mm -hmm. um and promising to like bring them back gifts and stuff and then the mother winds up dying Uh and lindy cannot go on and the cycle is you know she realized she has to stay and take care of her family and the cycle repeats itself so burl is is talking about this this trap that is being just repeated over and over again due to lack of education and opportunity for black southern people in america and this speaks a lot to the concept of motherhood also, mm-hmm. um, the idea that, well, A, that it's unhealthy for a woman to have babies quick in succession. Mm-hmm. Or like, you know, uh, I remember in history class, m- 
Queen Maria II of Portugal died as a result of having about 11 babies in 11 years. Really? It's just not healthy for a woman's body, yeah, you know? Yeah, that continuous. <clears throat> and if you don't have even basic information about, A, where do babies come from? Uh-huh. You know what I mean? You, don't, you can't even do the practice the, the rhythm yeah, method. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, <laughs> I mean, like, how do you prevent it? So this is a great... Um, sort of parable mm-hmm. that Burl has created. I thought I, I compared it to that when I first read about it. It's a it's a parable. It it's going to teach a you a lesson about something, and it, it advocates for birth control. So at this time that she's writing this, it's very like radical and and crazy that she would even suggest. But mm-hmm. she's like, look, this is an issue that people are facing throughout America, and this is my solution. Let's get deep here and talk about what's at stake socially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what do people have at stake for keeping the Mrs. Jaspers of the world ignorant of birth control so she can keep producing children so that the cycle remains unbroken Uh so that she dies at 38. Yeah, exactly. See, that's what I was wondering just now when I was like, why was the Comstock Act a thing? Was it because of morals or was it because they wanted to keep black people in poverty? And I'm not saying that, you know, white women and, and other people needed access to birth control and education, but maybe white women had more knowledge about how to prevent... A pregnancy. Well, you know, the Mrs. Vanderbilts uh-huh. of the world, yeah. okay, who are living in Manhattan, yeah. they have access to Harvard-educated doctors mm. who are saying to them, all right, Mrs. Vanderbilt, you've had three children. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mr. Vanderbilt, let's talk about maybe not having any more children. Yeah. And then you have, say, uh, Mrs. Rosenthal, who's living in Brooklyn uh-huh. at the same period of time, who doesn't have access to the Harvard-educated doctor, or you have the Mrs. Jasper who's living in Alabama. So I think the Comstock Act had a really heavily negative impact on ethnic minorities Mm -hmm. and on racial minorities and on people who were impoverished. We can conjecture, and I mean, I'm sure if we did some historical research, we could kind of speak to it, but it, it really says something. Because think about it. This is written in 1919, so this would be 35... Less than 55 years after the last American slave is freed. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So we're still in the South where this play is taking place. Mm-hmm. It's still almost a solely agrarian economy yep. that is fueled by sharecropping. So the Mrs. Jaspers mm-hmm. of the world are producing these children who in turn transition into the labor force yeah and fuel the economy in the air so So they want to encourage women to have many children maybe so and what and and you gotta also think about the black body Mm -hmm. and its value i was gonna say have impoverished women who don't have access to education Mm -hmm. produce these children whose only option to make money would be to work in the labor force so it's almost like Mrs. Jasper is super expendable. Oh, she's dying at 38. What difference does that make? Yeah. She's given seven, she's reproduced, you know, seven times. Exactly. So the value, her value mm-hmm. in terms of social perception is almost nil. Yeah. I mean, this nurse cares, but um, that nurse almost represents a pushback against the social standard. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. She's, she's, depicted very like a very helpless character mm-hmm. she seems like this person who has all this knowledge and she's literally bound by the mm-hmm. system not to Powerless. share it yeah well and you know too burl does a beautiful job mm-hmm. of portraying a black mother 
who has mothering instincts, who loves her children, who cares about them, who doesn't want Lindy to fall into the same pit that she finds herself. Mm -hmm. And this is taking place in a period of time where the idea of motherhood Mm -hmm. was bound up fundamentally and exclusively in whiteness. Yeah, and I wanted to talk about that because when we're talking about femininity, I wanted to approach it from a motherhood perspective, mm-hmm. but not the beautiful, like perfect one that we're used to seeing. Like the June Cleaver everywhere. image. Yeah, exactly. It's like mothers are known to sacrifice so much, mm-hmm. and I feel like this woman who doesn't have much to give still embodies that motherly essence. Yes, and, and I think it's also important here mm-hmm. that, I mean, I, I haven't read the whole play, but is there a Mr. Jasper that's referenced? Yes, and he's referenced a lot just saying that he works very hard. So that yeah. kind of almost solidifies the importance of there being a mother mm-hmm. who's there because he all he does, he's just a body, a black body, just right. going out and working hard. He cannot run a home, and that's why Lindy staying behind when Mrs. Jasper passes away is just it's necessary for the family unit to survive. You know, Burl is doing kind of the same thing with her play. Of course, hers is like a fictionalized parable. Mm-hmm. But you think about Ida B. Wells, who's writing around the same time, and she's a, she's a journalist, and she's talking about lynching. Mm-hmm. And what they're doing is both of these women, in their own way, are drawing attention to a problem mm-hmm. that is affecting their community. And the message is not just for their community, it's for to bring awareness in general. Yeah. Um, and to say, these are hu- human beings, mm-hmm. okay, are being kept in ignorance. Yeah. And the human condition in this country suffers as a direct result. Yeah. So, black people, yeah. let's become aware. White people, open your eyes. Yeah, and exactly. It's like I I wouldn't see Mrs. Jasper sitting in the South having any access to this play. Mm -hmm. It's going to be the people that Mamie Burrell are in contact with, the black and white people in New England who are educated. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, wow, this is a real issue. Let me talk to my government officials and see what we can do about this. So it's it's a very interesting way to go about enacting change Mm -hmm. in, in an environment that I don't think Burrell was very familiar with i have no records of her going down to the south or anything but it's it's a powerful play you know it really is very heartrending mm-hmm. that di- you know that dialogue especially where the mother mrs jasper is talking to lindy and she's just saying directly i want better for you yeah than what i have uh-huh if it means and mrs jasper is aware that she is dying uh-huh you get yeah. that feeling yeah, definitely and she's just kind of like, let me make it. That's more urgent. Right. Until, you know. Until she's you're just, done with school. Exactly. Yeah. So it's not a matter of Mrs. Jasper. You know, we talk a lot about women losing their identity mm-hmm. within, say, roles like motherhood or, or wifeliness. Yeah. But this really takes it to a special level because you know that Mrs. Jasper has not had any identity, probably ever. So, again, she would have been the offspring of people who were, were born into slavery. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And let's get real, it's it's different for, say, the Mrs. Jaspers of the world who are a generation removed from slavery in the South. Yes. Where very little has changed Definitely. despite liberation uh-huh. versus the Mammy Burles who are living 
north. In the mid-Atlantic. states, yeah. Right. Exactly. And so it would the conditions would be different. And I think that's what Burl's touching on, too. She's using her education. Mm-hmm. She's using her... The fact that she has been able to kind of move beyond some of these um, things that trap her counterparts in the South. Exactly, yeah. And she's using that uh-huh. to sort of say, all right, let's all... Rise up and get, and up. get this education. Mm-hmm. I'm not... She's not just kind of like... Ooh, I'm so smug or you know hoity-toity about it all. No, it's almost like I think the the nurse and her just utter shock. Mm-hmm. It, it sounds like Burl, like how Burl would be feeling at that time. Huh. That the the importance of that character, I just don't want to gloss over it because it's like almost an outsider mm-hmm. coming in and saying the state of this is ridiculous, yeah. and then the information is out there. This topic, uh, well, the topic of motherhood, specifically the topic of black motherhood. Mm-hmm. We could do probably a twenty-four hour episode. Yeah, and we've had conversations about this in the past. Mm-hmm. I think we're like laying down in our terrible uh, Airbnb in Iceland once, <laughs> completely exhausted at two p.m. And you were just like, "And black mothers are just <laughs> disregarded." And I was just like, "Whoa, we need to talk well, about this in a podcast." It's because you know what? She's writing about it in nineteen nineteen. Uh-huh. This is a germane topic in two thousand eighteen. Yes. This is a hundred years later. Yeah. And the idea of black motherhood, black bodies, um, reproduction in terms of blackness. Yeah. These are all topics that are being discussed presently and constantly. Yeah, because black women have had their their motherhood challenged so uh-huh. much since the beginning of time. Every step. Yeah, oh and it's just like to have to prove that you were a mother when family for black people at, at points in history especially was just the only thing that you had. Right. And to have that challenged constantly and taken away from you or threatened is is terrifying. And to have your and as a black woman, mm-hmm which I am not, nor have I ever been, but as a black woman, to have your body um, sort of devalued into a commodity production device. Yes, yes. Meaning, okay, this black body produces other black bodies. Therefore, that initial black body is A, dangerous, but B, very necessary. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. So it's just tough. And this play goes kind of beyond us just talking about oh, black bodies or black motherhood because mm-hmm. on some level, Burl is is, challenge, is is standing in for women in general. She's yeah. using, she's a black woman. She's touching base with, you know, the idea of black womanhood and black motherhood. But her play is broad enough that she's really addressing the condition of women in a certain socioeconomic position. Yes. So it's not, so even though, it's, all, it's great because you can touch it here. You can touch it there. It's broad. Yeah. And you can kind of analyze it um, based on perception. I would love it if just real briefly we could even talk about the opening stage direction. Oh, yeah. You said that you love that a lot. I, did. I was saying earlier how playwriting is a very delicate art mm-hmm. that I struggled with so much in my screenwriting <laughs> class at LSU. It was terrible because you want to be direct. Mm-hmm. You, you are literally giving directions but you want to do it artfully. And I struggle with that, just stripping down and and sticking to directions. But Burl did such a beautiful job. When you read The Room did threefold duty, I'm like, that in of itself, she's saying, this is a single room Mm -hmm. that is functioning as the communal living space for this family of nine, you know? So she's kind of, and then of course she goes on to talk about the bedroom for all the kids and stuff, but mm-hmm. 
she's making it clear let's establish yeah. the condition of this family uh-huh. from the get-go. There's no space. It's dingy and disorderly, she right. says. And, I mean, that is all just one sentence. The room, which does a threefold duty as kitchen, dining room, and living room for the Jasper family is dingy and disorderly, <laughs> period. And that sets the whole stage. How much information is in that one line? Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. It is. Yeah. And that's not easy to do. When you're writing a script, especially mm-hmm. if you're somebody like you and me who writes short stories or novels or, you know, you write poetry too, mm-hmm. you want to be, you know, flowery and expound and try and get your point it's across. the fun of it, yeah. to like make it juicy and fun. And then this is just, mm-hmm. ugh, everything's so stripped down. So I appreciated that. And then, you know, flowing into the phonetic dialogue was was great and I think you did a wonderful job oh my gosh you were so, even if it <laughs> you made were you so uncomfortable sweet. you were hanging around in the doorway like you're doing great sweetie <laughs> I kept thinking I, I told you this I was like okay what if you were Viola Davis uh-huh. and you'd been handed a script she would have no trepidation with this yeah, and she I'm just sitting do- here like sweating like yes this is art this is art just do it <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm I'm really glad on so many levels you chose this playwright uh-huh. and that you chose this particular work because we're talking about femininity. We are, and I, I hope that we were able to tie in our conversation to the theme well enough because yeah. it's it's just it's so broad and overwhelming at the same time. Yes. Like there's so much to talk about yes. when it comes to motherhood and femininity and how those two correlate. And I know this will not be our last episode dedicated to either femininity nor motherhood. No, no. Um, it would be really cool to like find a story in an author who talk about like the actual act of childbirth and the power in that. Yeah. Because I do want to say that though Miss Jasper is very weak and she's literally dying in this story, there's something so wise and powerful yes. in that. She might not have had a lot of life experiences mm-hmm. or education, but giving birth I think 10 times I think two of her kids died mm-hmm. but just if that's all she did there there's a lot of experience in that process what a life's work yeah exactly you know? yeah so yeah it's, it's a beautiful story about motherhood and sacrifice even mm-hmm. and love so I'm glad we chose I, I am glad too. I chose this yeah wonderful this was another kind of tough discussion but the kind of discussion that really gets your mind working up mm-hmm. and thinking and extended yeah it's it's tough because it's hard to imagine these conditions not yes. the, not that it's difficult to talk about um, economic disparities um what really makes me excited that you chose a the topic and be the this author uh-huh. is that she contrasts and the subject contrasts mm-hmm. i think pretty heavily with the author i chose and the work that i chose that's great because so we're getting like Spectrum. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, that's that's really good because in the beginning we were talking about how femininity yeah. is so complex and varied and different. Mm. So that'll be really fun. Whee! And here's another friendly reminder to <laughs> check out our social media. Yay, you remembered. I remember. <laughs> yeah, um, like we said last time, I think we have an Instagram and we have a Twitter. And last time I said that on the Twitter I haven't posted anything. Well, guess what? There's some things posted on there. Honey, you've been working. Yes. So that Twitter handle is TWWReads. Okay. And then the Instagram, which I personally love a lot more, is the writer who reads. So It's easy to love Instagram because it's so flashy and colorful it is, and beautiful. Even though, you, yeah, you know nothing about it, but <laughs> there you go again. So yeah, check out our social media. Engage with us. Talk to yes. us. Uh, we and, are lonely people. Well, I was going to say, and also <laughs> feel free to rate and comment on any of our 
posts. Yeah, exactly. Like, go on the blog. You can listen to the podcast there. But there's also iTunes, which we would love some ratings and reviews. And Stitcher, CastBox, it's everywhere. So, yeah. yeah, Don't forget to, also, we've really been kind of hoping people would say, hey, guys, what about this theme? Yeah. Have you heard of this author? Yeah. So feel free to drop a line. (laughs) Help us Mm -hmm. choose people because we, it's, it's not easy. Yeah. (laughs) We're struggling. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, love you. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So this has been the 11th episode of the Writer Who Reads podcast. I'm your host, Kate Austin. I'm Trapper Kinchin. And thanks for joining us as we try to read a little more. Write a little better. And and explore explore the the human human condition condition together. together.